Amen. Y'all could be seated. Today's the last day of this year that we're going to spend some time in Sermon on the Mount. We'll resume in 2023. As I think about where we're going to be today, I think about how people sometimes compartmentalize preaching into two different kinds. Uh, there, there's preaching that just talks about doctrine and doesn't really touch down in my day-to-day -day life, and that kind's okay. And then there's another kind of preaching that some call meddling, <laughs> getting into the day-to-day -day of my life, and maybe it's sometimes convicting. Well, when I look at much of the Bible and where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount, God does a lot of what we might call meddling, because true faith always touches down in real life, the, the way we think, the way we speak, the, the way we live. And that's what we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus the King uh, speaks to his disciples about what, what following him in his kingdom looks like. And you remember we've been talking about something wild that he said to that crowd, that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And if it doesn't, you, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've talked about that exceeding righteousness. It only comes from him, but it touches down in real life. It's not just that we're forgiven and we get to go to heaven someday. It, it plays itself out in our lives. And, and last week, some of the, the meddling that Jesus did, you remember, we, we said, hey, instead of seething anger characterizing my life, let's open the gift of being peacemakers as much as is possible with us. We said instead of unchecked lust just having its way in my life, let's, let's open the gift of purity. And we talked about instead of willy-nilly divorce with no grounds, let's open the gift of faithfulness in our marriages. Those were the first of six examples. Today we're going to unpack four Five and six. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. And we're going to start by talking about oaths, promises, commitments that we make with our lips. Verse 33, Jesus says again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And indeed, they had heard that, not only from their teachers, but that's in the Old Testament. One example, Numbers 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Now, Jesus reminded them of that, and then he looked at them and said something shocking. Verse 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And you might be thinking, why? That sounds kind of extreme. Well, they, they, many of the religious leaders of his day, those who interpreted the scriptures to, to their liking, uh, they had warped this whole idea of oaths and uh, truth-telling. Instead of oaths enhancing truth for them, they, they created a system where some oaths were binding, like if you say it this way, you, you better keep it, and others weren't. 
which allowed them to be sneaky and deceptive. Kind of like, let me paraphrase it this way. If I don't mention God in my oath, but swear by something else, it, it's not as binding. If I don't keep it, it's not a big deal. You can see all the trouble that would open up. So Jesus goes on, verse 34, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Those are some examples of the kind of things they would feel, hey, if I swore by one of those things, it's not as binding as if I mentioned the name of God. But what, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, God created all of those things, including your head, which you have no control whether your hair is white or black. God's in control of that this morning. He's changing my more white over the years. He's the creator of everything. So if you swear by that, you're still accountable to the creator of all. You're still making that commitment within his realm. So stop your silly games. I think about the games some of them were playing, and I think it's kind of the grown-up equivalent of what sometimes happens among kids. Kid makes a promise on the playground, and then he breaks it, and a kid says, hey, you promised, and the first kid says what? Well, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. This is like the grown-up version of that for some of these guys. Or, or there's a grown-up version of it today, too. You know, somebody makes a verbal agreement, maybe a handshake agreement. Later, they break it, and then they get called on it. And what do they say? Well, I didn't sign anything to that effect. There was no contract. Same kind of games that Jesus has no interest in his followers playing. And if you want to see more of the special kinds of vows that they were playing around with, you can read his confrontation in Matthew 23, 16 and on. Some more of the ways they were playing this game. But what's his response to all this nonsense? Verse 37, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Think about those single syllable words in our language, yes and no. And I think about the weight of a word in God's eyes. Jesus would later speak of accountability for every careless word. And I think about this and I think about, man, when somebody asks us a question that requires a yes or no answer to commit or not to commit, we would do well as Christ followers to slow down before we answer because what often gets us in trouble we know how badly that person wants us to say yes yes I'll be there yes I'll serve in this way yes I'll do that yes I'll show up at such and such whether it's our family our wives our kids whether it's our church our our workplace we know that person wants to hear yes so yes but I want to encourage us to slow down especially if you don't really have an intention inside to honor that commitment fully. One of my mentors, and I'll never forget this, and I'd encourage you to hold on to it too along the way. He told me sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can say as a Christ follower is no. You're not called to say yes to everything everybody asks you. 
slow down. Maybe take it to the Lord. Is this something I should say yes to? And then if you do say yes, follow through. I think about this kind of integrity. And what I think about is this is only possible when we speak from a pure heart. A heart that doesn't have guile or deceit driving it. I think about one of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do we have that kind of purity of heart when we say yes or no? Do we follow through on that yes or no? I think about that kind of integrity and truthfulness. I can't help but think about Christmas. Think of God's own integrity, his faithfulness to all the promises he had made for those centuries. Think of those Jews as they longed for the Messiah. And then you hear Zechariah, John the Baptist, dad, singing about the Messiah to come. And listen to what he said in Luke 1, 68. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. We have a father of integrity and truth. If we're his children, we want to walk in his footsteps. I think about his integrity. I also think about what Paul said about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.19 he says, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's our Father. He sent the Son as promised, and all of his promises are yes in him. So I want to encourage us as his children this week, as we end this first point, Instead of deceitful and sneaky loopholes or careless answers that we don't care to follow up on. With God's help, let's open the gift of simple integrity in our lives. Let's let our yes be yes and our no be no. That's part of being salt in this world. Next area that we might call meddling. Area of revenge. I don't know what your week was like. Do you have anybody you've been uh, pondering a little desired revenge upon? Verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And indeed, that had been said. It had been written, Exodus 21, 24. And I say, why was that part of God's law? Well, first, we need to understand that was for the government, not, not personal relationships. When you go to the judges, that was one of the rules for sentencing. Okay, and it was to limit consequences, not encourage revenge. In other words, the idea is the punishment should fit the crime and, and no more, nothing over the top. But historians tell us that some, by Jesus' day, some among the religious leaders had warped that. And they had taken this as a personal invitation in their own lives and even a requirement. If someone wrongs me, I have the right and requirement to get revenge on them. An eye for an eye 
and a tooth for a tooth. That's what it says, right? And that's what some were doing. They were twisting God's intention, looking at the letter of the law, but missing the, the spirit of the law. In verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And he's going to go through and give us some examples of, of what he's talking about. And each one, he's going to command a very unexpected response from his followers. Unexpected from what, what you'd usually see in the world. First example. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, most scholars believe this was kind of an insulting slap with the back of a hand, more insulting than anything deeply physical harming. But you can imagine you're out in public, maybe on stage at the Oscars, and somebody just comes up and smacks you in the face. What's your flesh want to do? Yeah, you want to cold cock that guy right back, right? That's the natural response. What does Jesus say? He says, turn to him the other cheek also. This is uncomfortable. We don't want to hear this. I owe a great debt of gratitude to D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who shared some examples from church history of, of witnesses for Christ who have done this. One was the missionary Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary in China, and he, he was uh, so committed to reaching those people, he would dress like them, and often he could walk down the street, and people wouldn't even know he wasn't Chinese. There was one day he was dressed in Chinese garb by, by a riverbank. He had ordered a boat for him. He was waiting for that boat, and a Chinese man came by, wanted that spot on the boat. When he saw that boat come up, you know what he did? He he pushed Hudson Taylor, the missionary, down in the mud and went to take his spot on the boat. Only the guy that ran the boat said, hey, that, that foreigner over there, Hudson Taylor, he, he called me. The boat is his, and, and he must go first. Now, instead of just getting on the boat and leaving that China man in the dust, history tells us that Hudson Taylor did not complain, but actually invited the Chinese man on the boat with him. Would you like to come and share my spot? And he began to tell him about the Christ within him that led him not to fight fire with fire. Jesus goes on. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, your, your inner garment, What's your natural response? Fight him tooth and nail in court, right? What does Jesus say? Let him have your cloak as well, that outer garment. It was very important in their culture. Many used it as a blanket at night. That, that's completely unexpected. Number three, if anyone forces you to go one mile. Now, this was a historical reality at this time in Israel. Who were they occupied by? Rome. So a Jewish man could be out spending time with his family or busy at work, and a Roman soldier comes by with a big pack of stuff, maybe two packs of stuff, too much for him. 
that Roman soldier had authority within the empire to say, you, you're going with me. Carry that. And the law said one mile. Now, you can imagine the typical response. Guy's got a sword, so I'm going to do it. Who, who, Who responds favorably to that in the flesh, right? What's Jesus' response? Go with him two miles. Don't just go the one mile he requires. Go, go two. That's where we get the, the phrase what? Going the extra mile. Now, Michael Green shared an example of a man who did just this, a Christian leader in South Africa when there was a lot of racial tension going on. And he asked this Christian leader who lived through the thick of it, he said, how did you respond when humiliated and pushed around? He said, when, when I have been unjustly forced into some menial action, I complete it and then turn and ask my boss if there is anything else that he would like me to do to help him. He said, this totally takes the wind out of his sails. He can hardly believe any wronged person would respond like that. And what does that do then? It gives him a platform to explain why. Why? Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What do you see here? You see a, a generous spirit to share what is mine with others in need. Now you think about these totally unnatural responses to the human flesh and I want to say a couple things. Number one, these are only, only possible with a focus on the cross and not just a detached focus, but a relationship with the Savior of the cross. Listen to how Peter put it to a persecuted church. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And I think about that, and I think about this whole issue, and if you're like me, especially with the first one, the, the slap on the cheek, what's one thing you often start to wonder about? But, but, but what, what about self-defense? Like, what about someone comes to, to physically take my life or the life of my family? Am I allowed biblically to defend myself? Now, we can't go too deep into this for time's sake, but I'll tell you, I'm on the side of those who believe there's biblical grounds for defending yourself when your life is on the line. Okay, like I said, that slap that he was talking about, I believe that was more of an insult than a physical attempt on someone's life. Though I respect those who look at this passage and choose the road of total pacifism, okay? I respect that if that's where you're at. But I think for those of us who believe there's a legitimate time for self-defense, 
we have to weigh a couple of things out before we get to that moment. There are important questions. Okay, if I ever find myself in that situation where my life is under threat or that of my family, some questions to think about in advance. Am I going to do only what's required to stop the attack and nothing more? Or am I going to respond with an over-the-top, unmeasured response to what has happened to me? We need to ponder that before that moment. What's going on my in my heart as I ponder that potential moment? Am I, am I going to have the love of God in my heart, even for the man who's attacking me, even for the, the man as I defend myself against him? Or am I going to be filled with hatred for this person? That's something we got to sort out as a, a Christ follower. Will I have a desire for the attacker's repentance and salvation? Or will I nurse a desire for vengeance on him? for the rest of my life? Those are important questions for the Christ follower who, who believes in self-defense. But I want to say one more thing about the self-defense piece of this. Can we just admit that moments like that are few and far between where we live? That, that's a, a rare moment. I, I got jumped once in my life going into a super K and they got me from behind so I didn't even have a chance to think about it. I was knocked out cold and I woke up on the ground. Those moments are few and far between. Most of what you and I deal with on a day-in, day-out basis are the myriad of, of insults and offenses that we deal with on a moment-by-moment basis. That person said this. That person did this, and it hurts my feelings. Those are all clearly covered by what Jesus is talking about here. And I don't want the self-defense exception to take our eyes off the hundreds of moments where there is no doubt we are called to apply what he has told us here. That'd be a convenient deflection, wouldn't it? I want us to think of it like this. As Christ followers, we're set free, right? Free from the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of life. So it's not only that we're commanded to respond differently from the world. We are now free to choose a different way. We have the risen Christ living in us. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can live on a higher plane than those around us. And I think again... In moments like that, a lot of what it comes down to is, are we willing to slow down a moment before we respond? Just like with the yes or no response in these moments, can we slow down a moment? Because when do we get in the most trouble? It's when we're like mouse traps. We're In the flesh, we are so tightly wound. Someone even sniffs that cheese and bam! <laughs> can we just ask God to help us slow down, take it to Him, Lord, what is your chosen response in this moment? What does James say? James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
I think about this and I think about a marriage counseling example someone someone shared one time. You, you have a couple who's just snapping back and forth, back and forth. He says this mean thing. She says this mean thing. Up and up and up it goes. It's mean, 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 mean. Sometimes all it takes is one person to change the dance, to grab onto the truth of a proverb like a gentle answer turns away wrath. And that one person makes that choice to take the higher ground. And all of a sudden, not, not always, but many times, what happens? The other person's like, whoa. I'm not used to that. This is a different dance. And all of a sudden, it opens up a, a much higher possibility of making peace and moving forward. I think about the extra mile that Jesus has talked about in here. And I think about Jesus himself. Can we even fathom the distance between the throne that he sat on in heaven and that manger that he came for you and for me. Can, can we fathom, how about the Via Dolorosa? The way of suffering. That's the 2,000 feet from the Antonia Fortress to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher where those being crucified would carry their crosses. Think about what Luke wrote, Luke 23, 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And I think about that and I think about how this is the the preacher, the Sermon on the Mount, who said back in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. And how that's related to humility and, and gentleness, this strength under control, though he could call down legions of angels. There he is walking the Via Dolorosa for me, for you. We look at his example, and I want to close this point by just saying this. This week, let's look to God for help that instead of lashing out in revenge at those who push you to your limits, because you will find them, instead of lashing out in revenge, say, God, help me open the gift of the extra mile. Show me what that looks like. Final one for today. He's going to talk about enemies this is closely related to where we just been is even as i say that word i wonder if you got some people running around in there you got a little list it's a fallen world we have them he doesn't deny that there's 43 you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy now this is an interesting one because you shall love your neighbor. You know that's in the Old Testament, right? They, they left a little part out, two important words. As yourself. The, the extent that it was to go to. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you look through God's laws, you won't find that second phrase. What had they done? They, they had made a, a deduction with their human reasoning. Well, he says, love my neighbor. So it must be people who aren't my neighbor. I'm allowed to hate them. 
What does Jesus say? Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is not the first time loving your enemies comes up in the scriptures. Even that was back in Exodus. Did you know that? They conveniently left that out, some of these guys. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Don't just let it wander off. Bring it back to your enemy. Verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, there ain't a lot of people riding donkeys on 89A, but what's that mean? You work with a guy or a gal, and, and you've been butting heads lately. You don't like how they act at work, and there's a lot of tension. And you're driving down 89A, and you see they got a flat tire. <laughs> how would you apply this verse? If you have opportunity to help out, you pull over and help them. Why, though? Why? This is so unnatural. <laughs> Verse 45, Jesus says, So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. You want to live like your daddy. Listen to what he does. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He makes his son rise. He sends rain. What if we looked up every time we saw the sun and said, thank you, God, for your love for all of us. Every time it rained or snowed. I know the kids were celebrating the snow this week. They got three delayed days. Thank you, Lord, for the gift <laughs> of precipitation. And those of us who know Jesus, thank you for the salvation I have in your son. Thank you for your love. That's so important that we slow down and do that because, listen, we will not love our enemies if our primary focus is on ourselves. How's that person make me feel? <laughs> you look there for love, you ain't going to find it because they don't make you feel good. Right? We will not love our enemies if our primary focus is on them. Because what do we say then? Do they deserve to be loved? You won't find love there. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he sent his son for me. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I always find this phrase interesting, especially because Matthew was a tax collector. He's recording Jesus' words. and People look down on tax collectors, and Jesus is like, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors you despise do that. Even a lot of criminals love their moms and their spouses and their kids. What reward is there for living just like everybody else on planet Earth, Christian? Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, 
What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And I want to focus on that phrase. What more are you doing? What more are you doing? See, we're not called to a natural life as Christ followers. We are called to a supernatural life. The, the risen Christ lives within his followers. And it is this more. It is this different. It is this salt and light that gives us a platform to talk about him. Because if we live and respond just like everybody else out there, they don't give a rip what you say about Jesus because you live just like everybody else. Because I live just like everybody else else it's the different that gives us the platform i think about that i think about a boxer named billy bray anybody heard of him yeah i hadn't either till this week he was <laughs> he was a cornish evangelist evidently but he wasn't always saved and and he was a, a hardcore boxer but then he, he he came to jesus and uh not only was he a hardcore boxer, there's nothing wrong with boxing. He had a temper on him. He came to Jesus and, and he worked in a mine as well as boxing. And after he proclaimed his faith in Jesus, there was a guy in the mine that, that wanted to put Billy Bray to the test. So he walked up to Billy and cold cocked him. Knocked him down. Wanted to see what he would do. And Billy Bray stood up God's help restrained himself and said, May God forgive you even as I forgive you. That led his co-worker to agony of mind and spirit. Why? Why? I know what he could do. I know what he probably wanted to do in his flesh, but he didn't. And it led to that co-worker coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. He was walking in the footsteps in the power of of his Savior, Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you hear those words in the context of the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can we do that? It's only through his power. It's only with a focus on the Father. Why do I say that second one? Because that's where Jesus' focus was on during his suffering. Back to 1 Peter 1, 23. He, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's only as we entrust ourselves to the hands of our good Father that we have anything to offer those in our lives wronging us. Think of what he said in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this Christmas season, I want to invite us, instead of hating our enemies, the help of God, let's open the gift of unconditional love. I want to close with verse 48. I call it the shocking bottom line regarding righteousness. 
Look at it in your Bible if you have it. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that word teleos for perfect is interesting. It can mean mature and complete, but, but that doesn't take the sting off because the comparison is still there. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must love as He loves. You must be holy as He is holy. You must be righteous as He is righteous. But you say, how? It brings us to a reality that's been spoken many times. The Christian life is not only difficult. It is impossible. It is impossible on your own. It is impossible on my own. Whether you're talking about having a righteous standing before the Father or righteous living in our relationships with men, it is only possible we die to ourselves and put our faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you have heard of George Mueller? Faithful man of God who founded orphanages for many children. I'd encourage you to read his biography. There was a turning point in his life in this regard. I want you to listen to what he described it as. He said, there was a day when I died. I died to self, my opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. And it's not just a dying to self, it's a finding life in Christ. Back to our first Peter passage. Why did he die? 1 Peter 1, 24. Was it only to forgive us and get us to heaven someday? No, those are precious parts of it. But listen to what it says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You understand what that's saying? Salvation enables us through him to live his righteousness. In the power of the Spirit, here and now. So what it means when he says, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's where it all begins. Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you have, I want to ask you a couple questions. Will you prayerfully go before him this week? Say, God, I want to be a man or woman of integrity instead of deceitful and sneaky loopholes and careless words that I don't intend to keep. Help me open the gift of simple integrity with my family, with my friends, with my coworkers, with my church, and on and on. May my yes be yes and my no be no. Think about those you came in carrying a desire for revenge against. Lord, my flesh wants it, but please help me. Instead of lashing out in revenge, my thoughts and my words and my actions. Instead of lashing out in revenge at those who push me to my limits, because they are there. 
Help me, in the power of your Son, open the gift of the extra mile in my relationship with them. And Lord, instead of nursing this hatred that I have for so-and-so, this, this enemy in my life, your power help me lay that down and open the gift of unconditional love. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. If he only came and preached this, it would be a very discouraging matter, this exceeding righteousness. But he lived it, and he died for it. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for the manger, but we also thank you for the cross for the empty tomb, for the Savior seated next to the Father who sent the Holy Spirit so that we may not only be forgiven and not only enjoy heaven someday, but enjoy relationship with our Father today and live in His righteousness among those where we find ourselves during these days and months and years. Thank you for the cross.